Welcome back to the 430 Movie. We got our expert programmers here to curate Fantasy Theme Week's of classic film from 1998 film directed by Steven Soderbergh called Out of Sight yes Soderbergh directs it with such a sort of confident self-assured style Lex Luthor in Superman what is it about Gene Hackman that uh... his performance it's off the charts but still in reality fiendishly gifted 1981 Sam Raimi Opus The Evil Dead oh yes fine choice Sam Raimi invented entirely new ways to get shots that should not have been possible with the amount of money that he did not have charade oh directed by Stanley Donnan it's a textbook screenplay it's just effortless and there's not a wrong note in this movie can't say enough great things about it we'll be back next Friday with an all new episode of the 430 movie wherever you listen to podcasts join us now for the 430 Movie. The 430 Movie Podcast is available weekly wherever you listen to podcasts and on the free Electric Now app. Download it today. If you think you felt a great disturbance in the force, you're not wrong. Ed Gross and me, Mark A. Altman, have a new oral history coming out from St. Martin's Press. It's Secrets of the Force, the complete, uncensored, unauthorized oral history of the Star Wars saga. So, Wherever you buy books, audio, and video, pick it up today, and you can learn the secrets of the Force. And don't miss our oral history of Star Trek in stores now. And of course, nobody does it better. The complete oral history of James Bond in digital, hardcover, paperback, and audio. That is all. Sundays on Electric Now. Tune in to the official Leverage Redemption After Show, a very distinctive podcast with me, Yell Teagle, and my co-host, Felicia Michelle. Each week, we'll be breaking down another episode of Leverage Redemption. Plus, we've got exclusive interviews with the stars, as well as some games, and we'll even be showing off some amazing fan art. So after you watch Leverage Redemption on IMDb TV, you'll definitely want to join us here to catch all the Easter eggs and behind-the-scenes fun. The official Leverage Redemption After Show, a very distinctive podcast. Sundays on Electric Now. If you like listening to this podcast, you'll love watching us on Electric Now, the free video streaming app featuring video versions of all your favorite Electric Surge podcasts, along with full seasons of The Librarians, Leverage, the exclusive Leverage Redemption After Show, as well as Flash Gordon serials, hysterical comedy specials, and much more. Download it today from your favorite app store or watch us on Roku, Stir, DistroTV, Zumo, Sling, or Plex. Welcome to Best Movies Never Made, the podcast where we explore interesting and infamous movies that never made it to or through production. I am your co-host, Josh Miller, and with me, as always, is Mr. Steven Scarlatta. This is part two of our two-part conversation with writer-producer Scott Schneid. We're just going to pick things right up in our conversation where we left off in episode one. Well, do you, do you know why they changed it so heavily? Okay, yeah, so here we so let's switch to that. So our script was $4.2 million. Gillis and Tom, Al Gillis and Tom, who want to do all the effects, they met with a company called IntroVision. This was before CGI. So IntroVision made a bunch of studio movies. And if you look them up, it's, excuse me, it's IntroVision, I-N-T-R-O Vision. They had some sort of sophisticated, like, not rear projections, like front projection in camera with plates and stuff. And they would have been able to accomplish a lot of the fire stuff. 
And the, the head founder of Intervision came and gave a presentation to Chuck Friesen. Tony Caden, who was going to direct it, was in on the presentation. And he said, Chuck, for a $4.2 million budget, I have the budget, $4.2 million, I have it here. I gave it to Arrow, by the way. <laughs> I said, for $4.2 million, we will give you a movie that looks like a $10 million movie. And Chuck, who I never met, I only met some of the other people in the country, company, said, $10 million? What do I want it to look like $10 million for? I knew that, was, that was it, guys. That was it. I, that was, I knew that was the beginning of the end. What kind of weird logic is that? Right. Well, that was the beginning of the end. Because yeah. he was a former accountant at Columbia Pictures Television who all he cared about, and he made TV movie after movie in those days, he made for $2 million. And that's what he was going to make Phantom of the Mall for, $2 million. And he fired the head of production, or he left, Mike Rosenfeld, who was one of the founders of CAA, he'd been an agent. He was the head of the production division at Freeze and Movies. Mike left. Next thing we know, a guy named Maurice Singer from HBO came into the company, took Tony Caden off the picture, basically fired him off as the director. Never even, I think we met with him for one day, never came to us and said, Elizabeth Schwartz was great. She was the vice president of development and Judy Boesberg was director of development. They were nice, they were intelligent and nice. And um, they, had no, they didn't have the power though. Um, when, when Maurice Singer came in to run the film division and Mike Rosenfeld had left, um, they just took Caden off and never gave us an opportunity, never said, hey guys, we love your script, but it's gotta be 2 million. We can't make it for four. We're gonna have to figure a way to take down all these effect sequences, you know, keep all that great character stuff you've gotten, but take down the bigger shit. The, the finale is just too big. We can't shoot that finale. It's just, we, we can't do all those fire effects. We have, so, so, so I mean, they never gave us that chance. They never gave us the chance. Next thing I knew, I heard Robert King was doing a rewrite on the script. And I met Robert King. Robert King wasn't a bad writer. I read, I read a script he wrote actually that wasn't bad. And I, you know, but you know, he was told to cut the budget from 4.2 to 2 million. And in doing that, he obliterated everything, including all the emotional connectors. You know, at the end of Phantom, you know, the Phantom saves Amy. Wilton's about to kill Amy in the atrium, right? And, and the Phantom comes up. You see his red high tops at the top of one of those glass elevators in the middle of the mall. You know, where you ride the elevator up, you can see the mall all around you. You see the high tops rise in the shot, right? And the Phantom's got a, a, a glowing from the fire hot construction rod and he impales Wilton on it just as he's about to kill Amy. And, he, and, and then he lifts her up like this, right? Like this, and he hurls her across the atrium to the wall across the way. And she's like pinned like fucking this, right? And she looks, and then he leaps like, leaps off the elevator down into the atrium, right? Looking up at her and she's looking down at him, right? And she goes, blood's dribbling out of her mouth. She goes, who are you? He looks up and goes, justice. <laughs> what more could you want? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's doing that. I mean, and it's destroyed it. It's it's so very weird because I I get that they needed it to be cheaper, and I like the set pieces you were just talking about. It's like the set pieces are great, but what I think is what was really better about yours was all the character Char stuff. Characters that doesn't great. cost any money. I don't understand why. Yep, and I did. I did them. You know the Kyoto Brothers. I'm sure you guys. Oh yeah, mm -hmm. so the killer I, clowns from outer space. Yeah, they did Alien Christmas for Netflix just recently last year. 
stop motion, 41 minutes stop motion, Sean Favreau, executive producer. So I, I'm friends with those guys. I did, a, I did a feature script for them in 95 at IRS Films. And we only had a million two. And it was about a giant bug in the desert. It was like <laughs> takeoff on those 50s atomic sci-fi movies where they're- What was it called? It was called Giant Thing originally. And then we changed <laughs> the title to The Millennium Bug because <laughs> it was 1990. So we changed, and it was a, a giant bug in the desert movie caused, well, I'm not gonna tell you what the plot was. But we had a small amount of money, one million too. So we had to focus on the characters and the relationships and make the characters really entertaining and really interesting and you really can't, and make the suspense there, but much smaller. And that's what we did. It was a great script and IRS was about to green light it. And then fucking um, uh, Stuart Copeland, Aaron, Stuart Copeland, uh, uh, Miles Copeland, who was the brother of Stuart Copeland, the drummer for the police. Miles Copeland owned IRS films and IRS records. I think the, ba the Bangles played on IRS records and the police. And he funded a film company called Iris Films. And they made they had a five-picture deal at Showtime. So they, they were making these smaller movies, and Showtime was gonna play, and they were gonna play internationally, and they were gonna play on, domestically in the United States on Showtime. So they'd already done three of them, and the development person said, Yours is the best of the five. They were re getting ready to shoot it. Miles Colton pulled the plug on the company. Mm. <laughs> and the Kyotos mm. would direct it and produce it, and I wrote it. I mean, great, because they only made that one movie, Killer Clowns, ridiculous. which well, I did hope... a lot of effects, yeah. That's how I meant. No, but I just meant like they only directed one movie, and it's yes. good. I've always wanted yeah. them to do more. And, Wait, and, I, uh, I just realized I have one last Phantom of the Mall question before yeah, no, we... I have, I, have, I have a couple, too. Just... <laughs> why did they call it Phantom of the Mall Eric's Revenge? One of the all-time dumbest titles. <laughs> Here's why. Here's why. So when we were developing the script with Tony Cave, the director at, at Freeze, when the script was finished, they gave it to two marketing companies. One was called TAPE Consultancy. The other one was the National Research Group, founded by Joseph Farrell, Joe Farrell, who was a well-known guy in Hollywood at the time. He did a lot of this stuff in the studios. Studios used him. And the two reports came back. TAP Consultancy said that because Carl the Phantom, not Eric, but Carl the Phantom, um, was significantly different. They thought he could become the next cult, you know, the next sort of franchise horror teenage thing. Mm -hmm. And they signed Eric, right? They signed Rydell. Derek Rydell was that played the Phantom. Never yeah. met him. You know, we weren't even invited on the set. You know, writers didn't even, and Tony wasn't directing anymore. So I was like, again, frozen out. You know, um, Rydell was signed for multiple sequels because I always saw Phantom Walk. I mean, do you, do you remember the finale in my script for Phantom of the Wall? Do you remember the tag after the kids escape? Oh, I don't. So after the kids escape the mall through the sewer tunnels underneath. So the, the, the investors are all burning. They've been locked in. All the entrances are locked. But Buzz the mall rat knows the tunnels. Because remember, he did the party on the 4th yeah. of July. So he used the tunnels and all the kids got into the town. So the kids in the town, we'll, we'll come back to your question in a second. The kids in the town, are all working as waiters. They all have jobs in the mall, but the mall people hire them to be the waiters at this big party that the Wilton Corporation is throwing for all the future investors who want to flow it in to come to this party to, the, to see the new mall that they're going to have in their town someday and that they're going to pay Wilton $150 million to build. And they all get burned by Eric, by Carl, Eric Carl, and they can't get out of the mall. It's like I said, it's like a towering inferno. And the kids escape because Buzz leads them to the sewer tunnels that only Buzz knows, now the kids know. And 
the Phantom, Amy's almost killed in the atrium by Wilton. The Phantom saves her, kills Wilton. And he carries Amy in her arms under the tunnels to where the kids are. The kids are, they're not, it's like multiple shafts in a juncture, like in the Nostromo. They don't know which direction to go. And the fire could come down any minute, roaring down the, 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 uh, the sewer tunnel. So there are multiple tunnels leading in different directions. And the kids are stuck. They don't know where to go. The police chief and the, ma the male mayor, not Wilton, have already been incinerated and went down the wrong tunnel. Jack. They've been incinerated. That's the way they die. Um, and they, they don't know where to go. And all of a sudden, the Phantom shows up with Amy in his arms. And he hands the Phantom, the Phantom hands Amy, he looks at Peter Lincoln, his former best friend, and who Amy was good friends with too, because they were friends, the three of them, even though Amy dated, of course, and loved Carl. He hands Amy over to Peter. And throughout the movie, Peter has very gradually been trying to help Amy come out of her post-traumatic stress. Not in a sleazy, like my friend's dead, I'm gonna hit on you, you know what I mean? <laughs> they went to a party, he asked her to dance and she said, no, Peter, I'm just not ready. He said, okay, you know, there was nothing sleazy or overly aggressive about it. You know, he was Carl's best friend. And at the end, the kids are all there, the six, seven kids we've been following, not just the one or two and Robert Scripp. And, and you know, he, hand, he looks at Peter and, and literally she's not quite, she's just coming to from what happened in the atrium with, with Wilton, when, you know, she's just coming to consciousness, the hands are over and she, she goes, Carl, Peter, how, how, how did I get here? She doesn't know, she got there, we saved her, right? And she, and she goes, Carl, you gotta come with, you gotta come. See, I just, I get choked up every time I fucking talk. <laughs> and, and he hands him over and he just jets off down one of the tunnels. And then you hear, um, you hear, Carl love, no, you hear, love, Amy. Sequels. <laughs> it, was a, it was a beautiful moment. Yeah. Really felt, she loved him. It wasn't like in the fucking finale where they blow them all up and she and the reporter escape and they're looking at each other and she's, the reporter makes some comment about the family says, well, I got you. <laughs> it was horrible. It was horrible. And then the finale, the tag was, the tag was, you cut to a bulldozer, a little like the opening, you book it, right? A bulldozer going down a street at night in the neighborhood all the houses are dark. It goes into a construction site and it says future site of the, another town name of the town mall, you know, contractor, uh, a different contractor's name, not the Wilton Corporation because she's dead. And then all of a sudden you see the sewer grate right outside the yard where all the heavy equipment is parked, the sewer grate starts to turn, scrape and turn, scrape and gnarled fingers start to pick the grate up from below the ground. And you hear in the dark, justice. <laughs> that was the finale. So you can see from the little I'm telling you, we're talking a 100% different movie basically. Mm -hmm. You know, there, there was nothing left. And it was depressing. And you know, what it, you know what it made me do? It made me want to be a director. So in 1995, I went out and I directed a third, an 11 minute short film and I got into the MFA directing program at the American Film Institute. But you know, it's not easy to get into, trust yeah. me. So, and I spent a year that I did great. I've been attached to direct real movies five times. I was gonna direct an $8 million movie in 2002 that I wrote for Crusader Entertainment. Crusader made Ray with Jamie Foxx. They made Sahara with Matthew McConaughey about an evil bicycle from hell 
come yes. to town, lead her to hell mm-hmm. from like his minister dad and his nurse mom. Wait, what was the title? Red Racer. <laughs> so it's uh, it was Christine for the tween crowd. Yeah, oh, look at that. it's great. It's almost oh, that got would be great. It's almost got made three times. I, I can go on and on. Like oh, I've told you about Legacy, aka Dark Thirst, aka uh, the Dread, aka Frat. <laughs> we'll get to that one after. Uh, uh, Maybe we should do a different ball. session. <laughs> oh yeah, well, I, I actually wanted to ask. Um, I'm sorry, Steve. Yeah. Did you did you see it in the theaters? Because I w- yes. I was just curious. I went and I looked it up to see when it came out, which was strange. It came out in December 1989. It was a Fourth of July movie. It takes place in the Fourth of July, but they released it against Back to the Future Two, Harlem Nights, and National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. <laughs> so it had some stiff competition. Yeah. But the ad I found it said that they were going to be doing blood pressure tests at the oh, theaters. Yeah, blood pressure because the movie's so fucking scary mm. <laughs> there's, not, there's not an iota of suspense in that movie there was so I much i still want to know why'd they call it eric okay sorry Revenge. let's get back now. <laughs> it was called eric's because the two marketing companies tap consultancy and the national research group tapa consultancy said we think this could potentially be a new tween horror franchise that Carl Grant is a different enough character, you know, empathetic in so many ways that it might really work. And what happened was, was that they said, but the, the title Phantom of the Mall, teenagers today in 1988 <laughs> associate a phantom with a ghost or something, not really scary. So we recommend a title change. Next thing I know, it's called Phantom of the Mall, Eric's Revenge idea. And I'm going, Phantom of the Mall, Eric's, who the fuck is Eric? (laughs) I mean, this is not a sequel. I said, so um, it was ridiculous. And they had the greatest tagline for the movie, the marketing people. It was called Phantom of the Mall, whether it was Phantom of the Mall, Eric's Revenge, or just, it was originally Phantom of the Mall. I have actually posters where it was just Phantom of the Mall. Then I have posters where it's Phantom Mall, Eric's Revenge. Then I have a poster where it was just fucking Eric's Revenge. There was no Phantom of the Mall in it anymore. It was reviewed in Cine Fantastique magazine as Eric's Revenge. It, was no, it wasn't called Phantom of the Mall. They were idiots. I'm sorry. They were idiots. They were TV movies. Now, there were some good TV movies that got made back in the day, but they just didn't. They, weren't, they shouldn't have been in the feature business. It was ridiculous. I mean, my friends and I were convinced it was a sequel to a movie we'd never seen. It was absurd. So it, it, it they call, so they had the greatest tagline on the original poster, where it was just Phantom of the Mall with the Phantom's face, which was kind of cool poster over the interior of the mall and all those cool colors. It was kind of nice. The tagline was places to go, things to do, people to kill. <laughs> That's a great tagline for a mall movie. Places oh, to go, is. things to do, people to kill. Phantom of the Mall. Next thing I know, it's Phantom of the Mall. Eric's Revenge. They take the tagline, places to go, things to people to kill, and get rid of it. At the top of the poster, they write, there was a phantom in the mall. Eric, no, I'm sorry. There was a nightmare in the mall. Eric the Phantom struck. (laughs) That was the tagline, guys, on on the posters when it was released in theaters and on the video. That was, I mean, talk about driftwood. (laughs) <laughs> Can you, you come up with a, a more a duller? There was a nightmare at the mall. Eric the Phantom struck. Okay. 
Oh, so, yeah, I'm looking at it, right? Yeah, the guy Chuck Fries, I, I'm saying freeze, his last freeze. name wrong. He, he pronounced, talked, pronounced Freeze. Freeze. He talked to the newspaper. He said on Halloween, Friday the 13th, there was a nightmare in the mall. Eric the Phantom struck. Yeah. And then he said, I definitely see this as a franchise. So was there any other ideas floating around for C? No, we never got that far, other than they signed Derek Rydell for a couple of sequels, is my understanding. And relate your question, Steve, about, about theatrical release. It was released theatrically in across the country, but it wasn't tracked like the studio movies were tracked in Reporter and Variety. They show you how many, back in those days, they would show you how many screens they were opened on, what the, the cumulative gross was what the per screen average was. They had none of that. It wasn't even reported in the trades. It was probably, they probably made, you know, X number of prints, whether it was 50 or 30. It opened up in Detroit. It's in a newspaper ad in Detroit at an AMC theater. It opened up in LA. I did see it in LA in a theater. There were probably 10 people in the theater. They had no money. They had no money for, for TV advertising. No money at all. So, they showed the trailers on VH1 at a movie show, like MTV and VH1 those days were kind of popular cable shows. So uh, Greg Kinnear was one of the VJs on VH1. <laughs> he actually showed the trailer. You know, he said, oh yeah, it looks like the Phantom got his revenge there. You know, it's <laughs> after the trailer was like a minute trailer or whatever. So um, no, I went and see it. Nobody was in the theater, basically. Freeze was so lame. They hired those billboard trucks you know the old style movie billboard oh yeah that were like this you know with billboards on both sides the fucking billboard truck is driving around los angeles with fan on the wall posters that's what they did <laughs> that's what they did before we let you go i do want to hear the uh the legacy i'm always fascinated by scripts where the title keeps changing yeah I want the legacy of the dread which at one point was called <laughs> legacy to Dark Thirst, to Frat Pack. How did you know about Dark Thirst? Uh, I someone, think you read it. Did, I think Jim Coons. Oh, or I said to Jim. Yeah, yeah, yeah he told us. Great time together. I said we started talking about other projects. I said you should read this just for fun. And I don't give it to Jim because I think Jim's going to get my movie finance. It's just that he loves horror movies. He liked Silent Night Deadly Night. I said you should read this. This is a movie that has come so freaking close. We're fine. Okay, so in my back to my partnership with Tony Michaelman. We wrote seven spec features together, one of which was a script called The Dread in 1990, 1989. And Darren Serafian, you know the name Darren Serafian? His dad, Richard Serafian, was a director who directed Vanishing Point. Oh, wow. Yeah, that? yeah. So Darren went on to do a lot of TV. He's, he's in his 50s. He does a ton of television. He's a big TV director. He was a friend of mine for a while back in my younger days. And... Darren came to me and said, I really like, to, like my writing. He said, I'd really like to do a horror movie, like I said, on a college campus, about maybe like a horror movie club, like a bunch of kids that are in a horror movie club. And I because he was doing some low budget features then. It was the early part of his career. And I, I thought about it and then I went home. I don't know where it came from. I said, nah, a fraternity of werewolves. <laughs> <laughs> mm -hmm. Okay, so that is the concept for Legacy, like, the dread, when it was written in 1990. And it was not, I take it back, it was not written as a spec script. One of my best friends from my undergraduate days at Harvard was the grandson of the founder of TJ Maxx. Except the fucker hasn't come through for me in a big, big way. <laughs> <laughs> so um, he, um, he produced a couple of IMAX, executive produced two IMAX movies. And he wanted, was dabbling with the film business. He came from a conservative family. But he's dabbling with the film business. 
And I told him, I said, John, I got this idea. And I'm coming off of Silent Night, Deadly Night, and Phantom of the Mall. And this was 1990. He said, well, I'll tell you what, I love that idea. He said, I'll pay you guys 20, 25,000, I think it was, to write the script. Uh, and about, so he did. So we wrote, we wrote The Dread. And The Dread, I did a ton of werewolf research. I mean, deep, I did a deep dive. I don't mean one book, I mean a ton of shit. <laughs> I was in the stacks, you know, priests had written shit in like <laughs> 1525. I mean, I'm serious. This is my American history background from college coming in. We had to write tons of papers and, you know, I kind of like going in the stacks and nobody's down there. It's kind of creepy. There's a horror movie right there, you know? And there is a scene in, like, there's a scene in the dread in the stacks actually. So um, yeah. And I said, let's do a story about a fraternity of werewolves in a small New England college like Amherst in Maine called Lawrence College. And it's just a small college town surrounded by woods and a lake. And, you know, it's like a little mini Ivy League school, but it's much smaller, like Williams, Williams, uh, Wesleyan. And, and um, I said, except they don't turn into werewolves anymore. Come on, man. It's 21. It's 2021. You can't kill a fucking werewolf with a bazooka. Get out of here. I said, so what they do is they've channeled. So it's an allegorical story. They've channeled all of that killer energy into Wall Street. Washington, D.C., Fortune 500, and they don't, they don't turn anymore. They have come up with a pill called the compound. And each kid in the frat, and the frat's not Adam Mouse, it's the exact opposite of Adam Mouse. It's L.L. Bean meets Sharper Image, okay? Every kid's got a fucking bitchin' flat screen TV, an iPad, everything. It's high tech to the max. But it looks like from the outside, it's like a beautiful old New England frat house. But inside, it's all high tech and it's really cool. And they don't turn into werewolves. They just don't, they know they're werewolves. They're smarter than we are. They're stronger than we are. Their vision's better. Their hearing's better. But they don't turn. They go to Harvard Business School. They go to Stanford Law School. And they run the country. And our story is about a kid who's a freshman pledge from Milwaukee. His dad owns a drugstore in Milwaukee who threw a computer error is accepted as one of the incoming freshman pledges. They know who all the incoming freshman werewolf kids are. Those are the only ones they take, okay? And he gets into the frat and they don't turn. It has nothing to do with the full moon. The werewolf genre is so ripe for fucking reimagining. My, my dick is hard. No, I'm serious. The werewolf genre is so ripe for an imagining it's pathetic. This was the imagining. And I'll tell you why. So Steve Miller is a great kid. Dad owns a drugstore, he wants to go to Harvard Business School, wants to work on Wall Street, but he's not an asshole. So these guys, they all drive Saab convertibles and BMWs and, you know, the latest whatever. The women love them. They can fuck for years. They need double XL Magnum uh, Trojans, <laughs> <laughs> right? And they're all studs. They're all studs. But behind clothes, and they're so nice and polite, but when they shut the front door of the frat and they pull the shades down. It's Nixon's fucking White House. They're, they're Nixon's plumbers. They plot and scheme on campus to bring down the editor of the newspaper because he's a prick and he doesn't like the doesn't like the Greek system, the editor of the newspaper because of some hazing and on and on. And Steve, who's, who's a good kid, but wants to go to Harvard Business School, wants a business career, slowly starts to realize this. My frat brothers are fucking 
assholes. <laughs> and they slowly start to realize, this guy doesn't seem like one of us, right? Did we make a mistake? And here's the big kicker, the pills aren't working. This is the compound's not working anymore for some reason. And the compound has always worked and it's not working. So they know they're werewolves, but they've never turned before. And they, they have, a, they have a, a, a person on campus who they go through if there's any werewolf issues in the frat, because no one knows their werewolves. They can't just get on the phone Mm-hmm. On the phone lines or their cell phone, they don't talk about it. So it's totally secret. It turns out the dean of the college is a werewolf. Okay. Uh, the college is not werewolf except for this one frat and the dean. That's it. And they're turning, but they're turning. The full moon is, it's, it's like a woman menstruating. Women menstruate different days of the month. They get some cramps, some sweats. They take a cup, they take whatever they take, and they're, they're fine, right? The headache goes away. So they take their compound and they don't turn. They don't turn, but now they're turning. Not in mass. That's what's cool about it. They're not turning in mass. One kid turns in the library. <laughs> I can, I can, so, so it's happening. And they don't know what the fuck is happening to them. So they have to go through the deed, right? And, and in my research, I found out that there were werewolf trials in the Middle Ages, not on the scale of witch trials, but there were werewolf trials. And what they used to do is they used to take hot pincers and rip the flesh from the humans they thought were werewolves because they thought they wore their wolf skin on the inside. And they actually called them turncoats because mm. they would turn inside out. So that's the whole new effect we came up with, that they literally turn inside out when they metamorphose and never been done before. And it, it to- the, the transformation mirrors the allegorical nature of the story where that if you want to be successful in the world of business, you better be a killer beast, right? <laughs> and that you, be, you could be, you're really polite on the outside when you're in the world, you kiss babies like a politician, you kiss babies for the photo ops. But once you get into that Nixon White House and shut those doors, you're a fucking scumbag and you're plotting and scheming. And that's what the whole movie's about. Now, here's the deal. Here's another thing that makes it unique. I hope you're not stealing this. Well, it's all right. <laughs> so the other thing is, is that the people, this all came from the research also, guys, is that in the Middle Ages, if you wanted power, what better way to get power than through metamorphosis? If you could turn into a werewolf, nobody's going to fuck with you. Not only that, they will pay you tribute monthly not to turn into a werewolf <laughs> and fuck with them and kill their cattle and whatever. So... It all traces back. So the families of these kids who all, you see the fathers are all senators. You see them on the wall of fame in the frat, they're all Wall Street titans. And, you know, and um, they all, their, their ancestors made a pact with the devil hundreds and hundreds of years ago for earthly power and riches through the power of metamorphosis, turning into world. But, in the 1960s and 70s and 80s, the werewolf people started to say, wait a minute, we, this is, we can't turn into monsters anymore. They're going to eliminate us. There's way more of them, and they've got weapons that are, can kill us, can, can certainly hurt us. You know, we, we've got we've to keep, we've got to stay secret. So they developed the compound, and they just, they're indoctrinated from birth to take the compound. They can't turn. They cannot, their secret society cannot be found out. And so, the, so 
in the beginning of the movie, and it's not two movies when you read it, it really plays. There's a comet coming out of the lupid constellation in the sky. There really is the wolf's head constellation. <laughs> and so there's a comet coming out of the lupid. So the devil sends a comet out of the lupid, the, out of the lupid constellation in the sky, which reaches perigee, meaning where it passes closest to Earth, over Lawrence College in Maine. <laughs> and, and as it's on its way, in, is it, as the comet comes into the solar system, because that's what comets do, the Haley's, they just come into the solar system. So, so meteor showers are just comets that have kind of blown up on their, mm -hmm. their trips around the solar system. And so the comet was one giant rock and it turns into a meteor shower because the rock gets fractured and it's, trip or, and it's tripping around the solar system. And they, so Halley's comes every 24 years. So this comet, the devil sends, and it's great. It's fucking great. The devil sends the comet out of the lupid constellation in the sky and it breaks up into a meteor shower which rains down in the finale. <laughs> Just like at UCLA, I don't know if you know, UCLA has a big, the fraternities and sororities, they have a big uh, event every year on the quad where they have, they raise money for charity and all the fraternities have booze and the sororities have booze, games and tosses and all kinds of dunkings and things. Well, yeah, I, I, I'm not gonna, it's just a, so, so it was written, it was written. So that, that's, what, that's, that's what's happening. That's why the frat guys, as the, and you see on the news, you know, the lupinate, so it's called every time a comet breaks up and it creates a meteor shower, they call it the lupinids. It's the lupus constellation. It becomes, this is an astronomical fact. It's called the lupinids. They add IDS, you know why? Because it's in every, every meteor shower that happens on earth, that happens every year. You'll see it in the news. There's always an IDS at the end of it because it's children, it stands for children of. So the uh -huh. meteors are children of the comet that came, that broke up. So it's children of the fucking wolf. <laughs> how can, how can, like, it's incredible, right? The lupinids, the meteor shower that's going to reach perigee, the closest to Earth, it's called perigee, is over Lawrence College, sent by the fucking devil, so that all these fuckers will turn into werewolves because the devil's pissed at all the, the parents and the grandparents for developing the compound. The devil gave them earthly power and riches through metamorphosis. The devil said, you will kill humans regularly and I will allow you to transform into these beasts that will make you rich and powerful and successful. But the pact is they all made a pact with the devil. And the pact is you must turn and kill. And they, they, they broke the pact. So there's a scene when Steve, and I, I can't get more stuff, goes to the, because he think he's found out halfway through the movie that his frat brothers are like a, a werewolves. He, he, and, and, and now they found out he's human, they've got to kill him. So he has to flee the frat at the midpoint of the second act. And he enlists the help. So in, so in 2006, there's a professor character from England, a visiting lecturing professor in anthropology, who it turns out had a run, was in, in, was in Europe, but his wife got killed by a werewolf. And he's, he got so scared, he ran, she was murdered, she was killed. And he became a writer debunking myths. He debunks vampire myths. He debunks where, but he knows they exist. And he's got an Irish wolfhound to protect him. He really debunks <laughs> all these myths. And he, he knows. And he's ended up at the campus where they fucking are. He's ended up at the one college. He's been running away his whole life <laughs> from, from the, the, what happened to his wife in a dig in, in, in the German mountains where it was supposedly a haven for werewolves. And they were attacked at night on the archaeological dig. And he ran, he shot at the werewolf. 
the eyes were still there after shooting point blank and he ran and he killed his wife and he killed two of his grad students. And that people say it was bears or whatever, but he knew it wasn't. And he, he's, he's, he, couldn't, he couldn't deal with it. So he became a debunker of myths. You know, there are no werewolves. He's written books on there are no vampires, there are no werewolves. And he ends up being a visiting professor for six months. <laughs> so the late Peter O'Toole was attached to the party. Really? Oh, wow. Yeah. So in 2006, it started, in, I wrote in 90, in 1993, Stan Winston, the great Stan Winston, who passed away a couple of years ago, who wrote one of my one of the letters of recommendation for AFI for the directing program. Um, I was friends with Stan and Stan loved the script. He wanted to direct it after Pumpkinhead. It was going to be his next movie. And Bob Weinstein gave him, said, Stan, I'll give you three million bucks to make it. Stan told, called me and told me, and I said, Scott, I can't make it for three million. I just, I, I just did Pumpkinhead for three million. My effects business is booming. I can't afford to take all that time away a year to make, to make the dread for, for the fees I'm going to get for three million dollars. He said, but listen, hang in there. I've got someone in mind to give a script. I can't tell you who it is. He said, let, let me get it to them. And they're, they're a big, pretty significant producer. So two weeks later, he calls you, Scott, Gail and Heard read the script and loves it. <laughs> wants, to wow. produce, wants to produce it for me. And I said, wow. Gail had just done, you know, had done Terminator. And, mm-hmm. and Stan had just done all the special effects from the first Jurassic Park. I called my mom up. I said, mom, if these guys can't get this. So, so. Two weeks later, I had three two-hour meetings with Gail. We did some polishing on the script. She told us in the third meeting, I think I've got the money. I said, well, can I rub your feet? I said, <laughs> <laughs> I said yeah, they want to make it for $14 million in 93. And two weeks later, everyone had passed. I couldn't fucking believe it. I said to my mother, Mom, I have Gail Ann Hurd and Stan Winston on a horror movie. And I can't get it made. Will I ever get another movie made again? I said, I was flabbergasted. I was just shocked. And then a few years later, I found out that Stan had directed a gnome named Norm, aka Upworld for Vestron for $7 million. I guess he had done that after Pumpkinhead. I didn't even, I don't even, no one saw it. It did get released. And people were nervous about giving him a $14 million, you know, for a, a horror movie, you know, because that movie bombed, didn't go theatrically. And um, I think he directed this like two hour Michael Jackson thing. Michael Jackson did this thing. I for didn't like, even remember that he did a gnome named Norm. Neither gnome did Norm. I. He did. Look at that in 1990. I had no idea. See, that's too. just one. And we went out with Legacy in 93. I didn't even know he had done it. And then I found out Stan wrote a book. Okay. And he wrote a book on his career. And he said, after I did, a, he doesn't mention the dread, but he says, after I did Legacy, he said that killed my directing. After I did a gnome upworld, aka upworld, a gnome named Norm, it killed my directing career. So Stan Winston killed my chances of getting legacy made. I'm sorry, the dread made in 1993. Gnome named Norm. Wait, and so it was called the dread. The dread, and then it because was called wait, because wait, because when there was an ancient poem that I wrote, but I made it, I made it up. That the professor Peter O'Toole was going to say. Beast in the sky, fire in its eye, hell on earth, death no mirth, the dread is born, scorn, scorn, scorn. So the beast in the sky was the constellation of the wolf. The fire in its eye is the comet coming out of the eye. It's beast in the sky, fire in its eye, hell on earth, because all the werewolves are going to turn. So I'm okay. 
Mm-hmm. Death, no mirth. The dread is born. Scorn, scorn, scorn. Man, I'm impressed you still remember that. <laughs> this, is, this, this is my life. Memory. Dude, this is my life. I spent, you know, year after year creating these things. Well, when was it called Legacy and when was it called Frat Pack? Okay, so Frat Pack. So after the dread, uh, it sat until 1998. And at some point in the middle there, we call, call it Frat Pack. But Michael Meltzer, who direct, produced The Hidden, Jack Shoulders movie, which was one of my favorite horror movies. In Great the movie. movie. Wanted to do one, also wanted to do the dread, but just didn't have the juice. He just couldn't, he could. So he was involved with me at some point on it. And then a guy named Rupert Hitzig who produced Wolfen. Remember Wolfen? Oh, yeah. Rupert went to Harvard. I met him through that Harvard. Yeah, I love parts of Wolfen. There were some great things in Wolfen, but Rupert wanted to produce it. He wanted to direct it, actually. Couldn't get it made. And and after Stan and Gail couldn't get it made, I said what I said to my mom, you know, mom, how am I ever going to get a horror movie made again? And then bid my time for a while, you know, was working on other things, um, not horror stuff. I was partnered with John Turtletown and Chuck Gordon on a comedy. And Burt Reynolds was attached to um, star in a script I wrote called Super Bowl Saturday that was greenlit by Jeff Zagansky at CBS. It was the only script that Burt wanted to do during his hiatus from Evening Shade, where he just won the Emmy and People's, People's Choice Award. And he was great for it. And then he left William Morris with the William Morris package. He signed with ICM. They pulled him out of Super Bowl Saturday, put him in Cop and a Half instead with Brian Grazer produced. <laughs> and so they put him in a feature instead. You know what I mean? Yeah. Instead of my TV movie. Um, and we had a $100,000 deal with Stan Brooks, who was the producer, Stanley Brooks, who is a director now. I can go on and on. So, but I'll need, I'll need therapy. I'll, you know, I won't say, <laughs> say too much more. So I bid my time working on other things, work with the Kyoto brothers on giant thing, you know, an IRS yeah. film. And um, see, people just think I'm the schmuck who did Silent Night Deadly Night. <laughs> it's like so wrong, it's ridiculous, you know? And uh, cause these, pro- many of these projects were so much better than either found found more Silent Night Deadly Night. And um, in 98, I through a friend of mine, I got it to the executive of, of creative at uh, Al Ruddy. Al Ruddy produced The Godfather. They loved, they loved the script. And Al Ruddy and Andre Morgan, they were producing partners. They gave it to Robert Kurtzman and KMBFX. Kurtzman loved it, wanted to direct it. He just made Wishmaster, which I loved, the first Wishmaster. Never mm-hmm. saw it. Kurtzman loved it, wanted to direct it. I had four or five meetings with Bob, did a little polishing. They did all the maquettes. They did all the ma- oh, Stan Winston did some incredible stuff too, by the way, the studio in preparation. And I, I have some stuff I can show you guys. Oh, great. Yeah, I shouldn't show it to anybody there. Because I mean, there's no movie, reason this movie couldn't get made tomorrow. No reason. Nobody's made any. Mm. It's, it's a horror version of Skulls. No one's made anything mm. like it. No, it, it's, a, it's a reinventing of the world ship story. It really is, and, and it desperately needs it. And so, so Kurtzman, we thought we had a deal at Artisan for ten million um, with with the fucking producer of the guy. I'm in, I'm in the producer of the Godfather's <laughs> office on the movie, and it's called it's called uh, it was called Legacy, I think, at that point. We just changed the title because we, because people keep reading it and saying this is really good. What, what what's going on? So so let's change the title and go back. You know? <laughs> so it was the Dread, then it was Frat Pack, then it was Legacy. And legacy work because we worked the legacy title into the when the guys in the frat are all turning into werewolves in the third act and mass. Up until that, they just 
turning one here and one there. You know what I'm saying? They turn and as the comet comes closer, as the meteor shower, the comet fractures into a meteor shower and is coming closer and closer, the pull of the, 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 the primordial pull of taking them back to their primordial selves, which is the deal they made with the devil for what we talked about to, to beasts, you know? So they're starting to turn more and more at the end of the third act, the entire frat turns. And it's a great finale, the finale is incredible. Um, and so, yeah, so I think it was legacy when it got to, when it got to Al Ruddy and I'm thinking, oh, so man, well, I didn't get it made with Stanwis and Gail Hurd, but I'm partnering with Godfather. <laughs> <laughs> and um, we thought we had a $10 million deal at Artisan. And something happened. I was told then that Wes Craven had a project that they'd gonna make instead, but I don't think he made anything in 98. I wonder if that cursed. was cursed, which was yeah. went through that its might, own horrible development yeah. or production hell. Not, I don't have my MDB up, so. I don't that know. was later, though, Curse. Yeah. Maybe, well, maybe did it start? I, that's I what I'm know. wondering. I wonder I'm if it started about. that early. It yeah. might have. So at the last fucking minute, they pulled out. They pulled out. Then it sat again. And then I got a phone call in 2006 from David Foster, who made River Wild, Mask of Zorro, The Thing, McCabe and Mrs. Miller, you know, The Core, Hillary Swank, and Eric. His development guy, Ryan Hepe, called me. He said, he said, I've been trying to track you down, man. I read one of your scripts, Legacy. I fucking love it. And David loves it. I want you to come in here. I said, oh, great. Here we go again. <laughs> you know, so get the meds ready. I mean, no, seriously. I mean, for all this, I developed insomnia back in 12, 13 years ago. I'm much better now because of acupuncture and homeopathy and meditation. Mm -hmm. But no, I'm really serious. Yeah, no. I developed a bad case of insomnia because of all this. And... Um, because you know, I'm a passionate person. When I believe in something, I really believe in it. You know, whether it's a friendship or a movie script. And um, so, David Foster, two-year road. I went down with David Foster, and I brought my T.J. Maxx friend. In. I said, "Are you really ready to put up money?" He wrote a check for me to go to AFI, which was really nice, and said, "You never have to give it back." And we were great friends a long time ago and, and maintained the friendship. But, you know, he was in Manhattan. I was in L.A. Saw him now and then. But no, we were inseparable from college for like three years. He said, I said, do you want to get in on this deal? And David Foy said, yeah, I'm going to fly. I want to meet with David. So we met. <laughs> I see it. I did a little bit of work for David. Not a lot. But um, we met. Hal Sadoff was running the international division at ICM. John Stern said, I'll come in with $4 million in equity. On a, on a 10 million US picture. Hal Sadoff, who made Hotel Rwanda in South Africa, brought in Film Africa as our David Foster's production partner. We were going to shoot in Africa. We had a South African director who's ICM represented in LA named Jason Zanopoulos, X-E-N-O-U. Jason's a great guy. He directed a couple of homegrown South African movies and was looking for the big leap into the Hollywood stage. Went to NYU Film School and good guy. I love him. We worked really closely with him on some of the polishing and we were, you know, just Skyping and he was out in LA. And um, so David was now partnered with Film Africa so we could access the rebates. We needed to be partnered with an African production company. How was the, ICM was the domestic sales agent. Media 8 was the foreign sales agent. Um, David gave the script to Peter O'Toole's agent in London. And I told you, Peter, I have an email from Steve Kennis, 
We used to be at ICM in LA and then went to back to England where he's from and opened up a small agency with Peter to his agent. And he said, and the email, I framed it. It says, um, Peter read Legacy and really, really liked it and, and would love to do it if we could fit it into schedule. And it was particularly complimentary about the writing. <laughs> Amazing. So, mm. Amazing. Um, and uh, uh, who the, the, the casting directors. So John Stern put up $140,000 of seed money. And we opened offices and Akilah Wood, the casting directors, Akilah Wood, if you look them up at the big fucking news, they were the casting directors. David got a, a deal for cheaper. And we were now partnered with South. We went back and met with Stan Winston. <laughs> From 1993, we go back to see Stan in 2007. I hadn't seen Stan in like five years. He gave me a big hug. But he got up from the table because he came late to the meeting in his studio in Van Nuys at the time. This is before he passed away. He passed away in 2011. So this was 2007. He was limping. I didn't know. I thought maybe he hurt his knee. Turned out he had cancer. I had no idea. No idea. And um, he wanted to do all the effects, even though we had a different, he couldn't direct it. We had a South African director, Jason Zanopoulos, and we, we had a South African production partner. Uh, we had a 40, we had a UK, a UK film fund called Scion, which had just funded Phantom of the Opera, made a $2.5 million equity offer. This fucker was, was tanked and ready to go. <laughs> I have 850 emails from these two years in my file. It was fully budgeted at 9.9 million, at which, which equated into 14 million South African with the exchange rate. Um, we had ICM, as I said, as the domestic sales agent, Mediate is the foreign. David had gone to, jo David Foster went to John Carpenter to see if he would do John Carpenter Presents, you know, because that always added a little more value. Yeah. To he did, John Carpenter had done that in a couple of films, as had Wes Craven, actually. I think it was Wes Craven's Wishmaster, I think. Yeah, it was. Yeah. So we were ready to rock and roll, and we had Akilah Wood, excuse me, as the casting directors. We were five weeks into casting in L.A. I was getting ready to go to South Africa in 2007 for six months. I was the CO producer, and it was my script with my ex-writing partner, Tony Michaelman. Five weeks into casting, 2007. We were the hot teens, your next generation of big stars, which horror movies are known for finding, right? Mm -hmm. Who came in to read for the male lead? Zac Efron. Aww. Who came in to read for the female lead? Because he falls for a, a freshman in the sorority. Um, Amanda Seyfried, Emma Stone, Kaylee Cuoco. Wow. Michael, Michael yeah, was in, I, I have the DVDs. Wow. Incredible. And uh, so we're, we're five weeks into casting. And my dear good friend Jonathan Stern's marriage is falling apart behind the scenes, and he pulls out. He pulls his four million out. So Scion was coming in with two five. Um, Film Africa was coming in with a money package worth four million, part rebate. I think it was one million in equity, two million in tax credits, partial. So it was nine point. We had a ten million dollars, but John's four million was the linchpin. He pulled out. ICM could not replace it. They just could, because they fucking don't do shit. That's no. We couldn't oh. fucking replace it. What a bunch oh. of bullshit that was. Oh, my so goodness. I put the whole movie together. Basically. No, I didn't put the whole movie. David Foster was great. I love David. He was a real old time fashion producer. Yeah. Loved material. He would work on scripts for hours and hours, draft after draft. You know, just great. You know, and he, he loved the script. 
And he loved the script. And, and at one point I had, Renee Haynes was a friend of mine. She's a casting director. She's the number one Native American casting director in the world. She cast all the Native American parts in Revenant, the Twilight movies. She loved Legacy. She loved it. She tried to help me get it made. But she's not really a producer, you know? She worked mm. with Chloe Zhao. On, she cast one of Chloe Zhao's movies in 2015. So it's just, and then, then I was just so depressed again. It was just really hard for me, as you can imagine. So I sat for a little while. Well, other people, like, kind of circled it a little bit. And then Liz Raposo loved it in 2014 at Paramount. But she said, oh, it's just not big enough for big Paramount. Because it's not based on an IP, it's not a fucking graphic novel, it's not a YA novel, it's not a sequel. She said, like, I'll never be able to, she was like senior VP of production then, she said, I'll never be able to get, because Chuck, so Chuck Russell came into the story then, in 2015. Chuck Russell got it. Because David Foster's old development guy, Ryan Hepe, was now kind of working on his own a little bit. Well, he actually was partnered with me, he was working on his own, and he knew Chuck from his time with David. And he sent it to Chuck, and Chuck said, I love this. I love this. And he said, but we talked and we said, it's so hard to get werewolf movies made. And this, you know, even though ours is, is a whole new take really on the transformation, on the, 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 the folklore, it fucks with it all in a really cool way. And they said, let's turn it into a vampire movie. And we called it Dark Thirst. <laughs> the allegorical nature oh of the story still worked. They're bloodsuckers, right? You know, senators are bloodsuckers, you know, Go, you know, co, you know, uh, people that work on Wall Street are bloodsuckers, you know, all they care about is money. So, and I, and I found a great quote from, uh, I, I'd have to pull it up, but I can see if I can find this quote for you guys. A great quote, we changed the vampires to open the script. I'll, I'll look it up while we're talking, but um, so Chuck, Chuck Russell loved it. And uh, I'm sitting at, uh, in lunch in Beverly Hills with Chuck Russell and his gorgeous second wife from Eastern Europe, some model from Eastern Europe. And Chuck goes to take a pee and the model says to me, she puts her hand on my hand. She says, and she leans in and she says, you must be a very, very good writer because I have never seen Chuck so excited after reading a screenplay. I swear to God. Chuck comes back. I find out two weeks later, no, anyone Chuck gave it to just, wasn't interested. Mm. I don't know. I don't know what more to do. So, I I, I mean, I, I I've lived three lifetimes with that script. You know what I'm yeah, saying? Yeah, that is crazy. I don't know what to say, guys. You know, that's that's the legacy story, and it's been sitting again for a while. I just wow. you know, and I have had no agent for five years. I haven't even bothered. You know, I, I set up the reboot for Silent Night Deadly Night. I spent seven years getting the rights back. It, that that that's a story that fucking exhausted me uh, to, to have the family give me the movie was incredible you know and i worked for the guy that owned it he was an, another accountant yeah <laughs> <laughs> and he hated harm with these guys and he owned the movie he never saw it he died two years a year and a half ago he never saw it he'd make wow. fun of it he made fun of it and I would go out and bring him. I brought him a Showtime deal, and as I told you earlier, a NECA deal, a Shot Factory Worldwide deal, uh, uh, <laughs> two Fright Rags deals. I can go on. And he, he, he cashed the checks, but happily, but that's all he cared about. He didn't care about the movie at all. And, you know, I've introduced Silent Night the other night five times at, at Quentin's Theater in a place of Black Christmas. In Beverly? 
yeah, I've been there five five years in a row. I mean, I, mean, I love that you got it back. That's uh, yeah. I feel like yeah, that yeah. doesn't happen that often. Oh, but the only problem with getting it back, you know, Josh, Steve, uh, there are more people involved now. Yeah, and mm. I'm not developing the script with Michael Hickey anymore. Just Dennis, Michael, and I. There are more people involved, mm-hmm. and I'm not sure. We'll see what happens. You know, I've always had a pretty healthy ego, so. <laughs> you have to survive Hollywood, you know? You can't yeah, be no, totally. But I've never been an asshole. And at the end of the day, I really do care about storytelling. And I really care about writing. And I love movies. And, you know, I'm a child of the meritocracy, as I told you earlier. You know, dad, and, you know, didn't graduate from high school. And so I gave, I gave the biz, and I still am, everything I have when I get involved in something. And I think I created some really good projects, but unfortunately, it's a meat grinder. Mm-hmm. If you're not writing the check to protect your material as a writer, and even as a director now, you know, I mean, the CGI people are telling the directors what to do, you know, mm-hmm. like in gigantic movies, you know. So um, I, I'm a lucky guy. You know, I say to my wife, I said, hey, my wife's name is Diana, and I'll let you go after this. I said, there are so many young men that didn't make it out of Vietnam or World War II, or the Civil War. I know that sounds really heavy, but as you get older, you start to realize that I feel grateful and thankful for the opportunity to put on my helmet and get in the field of battle in Hollywood without connections or money to, you know, you know, and, and do battle and really stand up for what I believe and work really hard on some really good projects that I'm proud of, you know, though I hate Phantom of the Ball. say goodbye great ending yeah (laughs) all right right. Uh, bye guys great chat thank you for your time that concludes our conversation with scott schneid if you'd like more content from us you should follow us on twitter at never made film and instagram at best movies never made where we post lots of uh concept art and script pages and other things like that you should also download the electric now app so you can watch video of our podcast and all the podcasts on the electric surge network we'd like to thank everyone here at electric surge including bill ritter and our producers mark a altman and dean devlin until next time this is josh miller and steven scarlatta saying we won't see you at the movies This show is produced by Dean Devlin and Mark A. Altman and is an Electric Surge Network production.